we kick off the show today by talking about the pandemic restrictions that are in place in British Columbia right now. Now, we all know the public health orders, stay in your bubble, no Christmas gatherings. We all know about the tough travel restrictions, no non-essential travel. And if you break the rules, the government threatened to bring the hammer down on you. Have a listen to this. This is the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth. First off, I'd say people need to follow the provincial health orders. Like the easiest way to not get a ticket, to not get a fine, or to not face uh, potential potential charges uh, is to follow the provincial health officer's orders and the orders that have been made under the Emergency Program Act. Okay, follow the rules or they'll bring the hammer down on you. So why is ICBC scheduling road tests for out-of-town drivers? This is incredible. There's such a huge backlog of drivers trying to get a road test in Vancouver. It can take months to get a road test. So guess what people are doing? They're going on the road. They're going to get a road test earlier in Victoria. They're traveling to the interior where the waiting time is shorter. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Steve Wallace, the owner of Wallace Driving School. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Steve, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, hi, Mike. I just want to, before uh, I forget, just say Merry Christmas to you and to all your listeners. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. Same to you, Steve. Let's talk about this backlog of uh, road tests in Vancouver. How long did it take to get a road test in Vancouver right now? Well, my sources tell me it could be two to three months, maybe four. Um, the, the problem is that they, un- they unhooked the system for three months. So everyone was out of business in the driving school business. Uh, nobody turned a wheel uh, from about the mid of, mid of March all the way to the beginning of July. And then they were very good at um, releasing the time. So they did it in chronological order. So the people that couldn't go in April or latter March were then the first to get test times, the first to be able to get in the system, and then the people in May, and then the people in June. But that didn't really solve a whole lot of problems. It was fair, but we were back to September and October before that backlog was actually hit. And then what happened was people that were supposed to go in July were trying to get times, and they couldn't get times until perhaps November, December. So now what's happening is Despite Bonnie Henry and, and Adrian Dix doing this phenomenally good job, and, and Minister Farnworth, he's probably he's the most experienced minister in the government. He's, he was there in the early 90s, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. Uh, so as far as that process is concerned, um, despite their best efforts, there are people that are phoning me at my Victoria operation. And we've got two or three operations, but at my Victoria operation from Vancouver and saying, we're coming over on the ferry, we can rent your car. I'm going, no, you can't rent my car. I mean, our policy is our, our car is reserved for our customers, and they have to take full courses to get our car. They want to, the rent, they want to rent your car to take a road test in Victoria. Yeah, my road test right. is uh, Friday at, uh, at uh, 3.30, a wonderful right. time, you know, to take a road test. It's probably the worst time you can possibly get, um, highest failure time, I can tell you. And so they, they want to rent mm-hmm. a car, a sight unseen, and, oh, I, and then they phone around to other places. So I'm getting at least four of those calls a day, of which we're refusing, not just on the basis of convenience, but on the basis of COVID. How, so we how have short? to wipe our cars down. We have to do the masking, shielding. Yeah. We have to make sure they're disinfected before and after every lesson. And, they, and the examiners are doing even a, a, a more dramatic job. They have seat covers. They've got gloves on. They've got all sorts of things that they are doing, all of the things I'm doing, and more to make sure that they're healthy. 
Okay, people are doing this because the waiting time is shorter in Victoria, right? Like, how quickly can you turn around and get a road test in Victoria these days? Uh, probably three months from now, two months from now. Okay, so but it's it a bit shorter. Four to five months in other jurisdictions. Okay, That's so the you, problem. Now there are some right. places I can tell you on the island where there are no road tests available for six months. Bang, it's all booked up. What about the BC? And, and there are suspicions that I talked to one person in one of the locations. I'm not going to name it, but you know the person working there said, Steve, we think that 30% of the people are coming from outside our jurisdiction. Wow. What about the BC interior? Are people going on the road to the interior to get a road test? Yes. Yes, they are. They're hitting Canlips and Kelowna. Not as much um, from the Fraser Valley. Like The Fraser Valley is the one that people are worried about because they can get to the inter- interior quicker. And there are places that don't have a whole lot of COVID. I mean, I've talked to my, my, my buddy who has a driving school in Prince George, and he's saying he's getting people phoning him saying can i rent your car and i'll take it in prince george because they're desperate some of them have jobs and they have employment prospects and they can't get a road test wow so they're willing to travel all the way to prince george to get the road test anywhere to get a road test because of the nature of their own personal problems but i i tell you right now that mike farnworth as the minister has you played his clip? He has right. a very dramatic kind oh, of view of this. Well, he's he's not, talking tough. He's not messing around. Right. And, and Bunny Henry and, and Adrian Dix have done yeoman service through this whole process. And so I, I think that uh, there's, there could be a solution to this to, to restrict the booking of road tests within certain uh, postal codes or, okay. or a certain region. Okay, so you're saying that the government or ICBC should should put a uh, put the hammer down on this and, and stop this. You should not be allowed to do an out of town road test, correct? I don't think you should be allowed to do a road test out of your region. So if right. you're from the Lower Mainland and then and you're doing a test in Burnaby or you're doing a test in North Vancouver, whatever, that that might be fine. But stay in your own bubble. Stay yeah. in your own regional bubble. That's okay, but what about like people? I, I can sympathize with people though who are are desperate to get a driver's license, and like you said, it may be people who who need this for their business, right? I mean, this is they're putting yeah. food on their table, and then they're told you've got to wait months and months and months to get a road test. I mean, I can sympathize with someone saying like, you know, I got to get my license, I got to get this road test, so I'm willing to do what I've got to do. Yeah, I thoughts? can tell you right now that um, I talked to one of the ICBC officials. They're training 300 new examiners for the province of BC. They initially trained an additional 100, but they kind of got whipsawed because some of the examiners had family responsibilities and so on and couldn't come back. And they found that the 100 that they trained was just a drop in the bucket. So that's what they're doing right. now. Hopefully, they can get these people up and running sooner than later. But the fact is that I think that for this time period, this is so pivotal now because we, we got the vaccine coming. But we know we're going to be in duress for probably another six to nine months. Right. And now is not the time to, to let your guard down. My guest is Steve Wallace. He's the owner of Wallace Driving School. Breaking the news on this this morning about out-of-town road tests. Very pleased to welcome back to the program now Premier John Horgan. Always appreciate his time. Premier, thank you for coming on today. Good to be on the show, Mike. Merry Christmas to you. Happy Hanukkah to you and your listeners. Thank you. Same to you. And I really appreciate your time today. Let's talk about the uh, the COVID relief benefit that you promised, $1,000 per family, $500 per individual. Today was the day that British Columbians are, were uh, supposed to be able to go online and apply for this money. The website, as I'm sure you're no doubt aware of, has been crashing all morning. Can you give us an update? Yeah, they're working on it. Uh, and it, that speaks to uh, the, the uptake on this program. And I'm excited about that. But 
so many people uh, hit hit send uh, that we've had uh, technical difficulties, but we've got a team working on it, and it'll be up and running soon. And if we continue to have difficulties, we'll just keep uh, trying through the weekend and into next week. It's not unlike, Mike, you remember when we got rid of the bots for people getting campsites, and uh, the, camp, yeah. the, the, the site kept crashing because people wanted to find campsites. That's what we're seeing today, and I ask people to be patient keep going back, keep refreshing, and hopefully we'll get uh, everybody through as quickly as possible. Well, with the experience of the campsite problems, uh, could the government have not anticipated the demand on the system this time around and being a bit better prepared for this? Well, I asked those questions, as you can well imagine, and the answers I got was we're fully prepared. But I also know uh, I'm not uh, a tech wizard, but I do know that uh, uh, when there's an overwhelming rush uh, to a site, that causes challenges. Uh, we had what we thought were fail-safes in place. Clearly, they weren't sufficient. So uh, I'll ask uh, people again to be patient and, and hope that uh, our tech right. uh, wizards are, are working on it right now. Of course, when the government is handing out money like this, naturally people are going to swamp the website. I, w- I wonder why uh, the government did not think about doing this in alphabetical order like the federal government did with the CERB benefits to prevent exactly the type of overwhelming of the system that we're seeing right now. You have people apply on staggered dates. Did you give any consideration to that? Because it probably would have saved these problems today. Yeah, I I didn't give any consideration to that. I left it to the people who manage these things. We did learn from uh, the the challenges around the campsite issue. That, uh, That was the first question I asked, Mike, and I was given assurances that we were in good shape. Clearly, uh, uh, that wasn't sufficient, and uh, I just, again, ask people to be patient. Uh, we are going to get through this. Uh, it's not unlike everything else in 2020. Uh, right. Challenges, uh, new attempts, new uh, new programs, uh, and, again, good suggestion. Uh, I'll put that in the box. All right, Premier, one of the, the people that I feel sorry sorriest for on, on this situation right now are disabled British Columbians who have a tough time in life at the, at the best of time now being required to go online and, and apply for these funds at the same time that your government is clawing back uh, the disability benefit you gave to them, $300 a month, uh, being cut back to $150 a month, and now they're being required to go online and, on a crashed website to try and get their money. I want to play this for you. Uh, this is a, a guest who was uh, on the show earlier this week, Carla Vershure, who is the CEO of Inclusion BC, one of the major organizations for disabled British Columbians, and they're, they're not happy about the situation. Here's what she said. But it's just really discouraging people. And, uh, right. Yeah, and disappointing us as well. Did they come to you and tell you they were going to chop this uh, benefit in half? No. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Premier, they're not happy that you've canceled, you've clawed back half of their benefit. No consultation. Could the government at, at least have not told them beforehand, look, we're clawing back your disability benefits? Well, no, I, I very much respect Carla and the role that advocates play in, in the system, uh, making sure that they keep government accountable. Uh, we made a decision uh, to match the monies that were being taken back from and a benefit that I need to remind you, Mike, and your listeners didn't exist. Uh, This is an unprecedented infusion of dollars between budgets, not just for people with disabilities, but in a range of other programs that we could talk about, whether it be for businesses, individuals, communities. So we put literally billions of dollars between budgets into the system. Uh, We believe that uh, if there are challenges with people with disabilities uh, getting the the COVID benefit, we'll find ways to get that money to them. That's the commitment that uh, Minister Simons has made, and we're going to follow through on that. I fully respect that this is a challenge for people in very challenging times.
but uh, the, the dollars will be balanced out at the end of the day. And it, it's regrettable that the, that the website has crashed. It's regrettable that forms have to be filled out, but that's the nature of bureaucracy. You know that. And, and uh, we're doing our well, best to make sure we're getting money to people, and I, I'm unapologetic about that. Well, I, I think it's also regrettable, though, that you're, you're clawing back a disability benefit that disabled British Columbians had come to depend on, and without any consultation at all. I mean, why would you not have at least consulted with these affected groups before you blindsided them here with a $150 cut to their benefits? Well, there was no benefit in, in March. Uh, we put in place a $300 benefit for a three-month period. Uh, we right. recognized that the, that the second wave was upon us. We, we uh, put another three-month benefit in place, and there's another further three months from January to March that's gone from 300 to 150. Uh, we've made it more yeah. increases in uh, resources for people with disabilities and added a, a poverty reduction plan that didn't exist before 2017, uh, we're doing the, the best we can to lift people up, and we're doing it in a way that we believe balances all of the needs right. in the community, not just uh, for this uh, community, but for all members of the community. Speak, speaking to Bre- uh, Premier John Horgan, let me ask you about another campaign promise that you made in the recent election, and that was to cut the delivery fees on these very popular food delivery apps like DoorDash. A lot of restaurants have been complaining about these fees. They're cutting into their bottom line, still waiting for this promise from your government here to cut these fees. Premier, let me play this here for you. This is Brad McLeod. He's the president of Sea Lovers Fish and Chips. And he he has a message here for you. Here he is. It's like most election promises. They can talk, talk, talk. But when action comes, nothing seems to be happening after the election. And here we are in the middle of the second wave and nothing's happening about it. And it's going to be too little, too late, I believe, for a lot of people in the industry. Premier, when will you keep your promise to cut these delivery fees? Yeah, Farnworth's working on it. We're hopeful that before the end of the year, this will be done. Uh, this, these are, there's a whole range of things we're working on, Mike. You know that. The public knows that. Uh, we're doing the best we can to make sure that we're getting monies to people. Uh, on the restaurant side, we took extraordinary measures early on in the pandemic, in the middle of the pandemic, to make amendments to things like liquor licensing, capacity on sidewalks, a whole bunch of things. And, and the good news uh, in all of this is that government systems have been stressed and pressed and they've come to meet the challenge. It may take more time, as exampled by uh, the, the crashing of the website this morning, but uh, the commitment to make sure we're getting the resources to people and meeting, living up to the commitments that we've made uh, is true and pure, and we're going to keep at it. But you just heard that restaurant owner make the case that we're in the second wave of this pandemic. A lot of these restaurants are just hanging on by a thread, and they're, they're waiting for the relief on these fees that you promised. We just saw an end to the fall legislative session uh, with no movement on the government from this. How come you did not make it a priority in the session that just wrapped up? Well, you can. all members of the legislature have a responsibility for the time we spent passing the COVID benefit. That took... Uh, much longer than we had anticipated. The opposition wanted to talk these things through, which is their job. Um, Mike Farmworth has a regulatory responsibility and abilities to manage this, and I am confident that he will do so uh, hopefully by the end of the year. Okay, Premier, let me ask you about taxes in British Columbia. You promised during the recent election not to raise taxes on British Columbians, with the notable exception of the carbon tax possibly increasing in the new year. The carbon tax in British Columbia is the highest in Canada, $40 a ton, uh, less than the federal carbon tax of $30 a ton. Will you consider giving people a break and continuing the freeze on that carbon tax rather than increase it in the new year when people are still struggling in this pandemic? 
Well, the federal government just made a significant announcement about carbon pricing, uh, so I think uh, you need to update your sheet there. They have a plan that's very ambitious and aggressive going towards 2030. We're going to keep true to the commitments that we made uh, in 2017 to get the tax to uh, 50 bucks a ton by 2022. Uh, we'll have a year coming on two years to achieve that. That was going to be a $5 increase uh, uh, in April of this year, 2020, yeah. and a five dollar increase next year. We've obviously deferred the the payment this year, and we'll take a look in the budget that's being developed right now, where we're going to look at a whole host of things like uh, disability benefits, like funding for education, funding for healthcare, all of the things that people demand on a regular basis, not just during a pandemic. And that budget process is underway, and that's when we'll make the decisions about where we right. go with carbon pricing. Well, well we're Premier, we're going to get. We're going to get to 50 uh, bucks by 2022 because that's the commitment well, we made to the federal government so they would stay out of our knitting. That's, that's going to be tough on people. And I've been, I've been covering your career long enough to remember when you were opposed to a carbon tax. And I, I want to play, go in the Wayback Machine here. I want to play a clip from you in the legislature in 2008. So I realize we're going back some time here, but here you are making the case to, to freeze the carbon tax for two years to give people a break. And here's what you said back then. Maybe we should freeze the carbon tax at its current rate rather than uh, increase the rates in June of next year and then June of the following year. I think that's a reasonable course of action. Uh, certainly the Vancouver Board of Trade thought that was a reasonable course of action. Okay, why was it a good idea back then to give people a break to freeze the carbon tax for two years? But here you are now, we're all going through tough times again, and you're getting set to raise increase it. Well, let, let's go back to the creation of the carbon tax, Mike. Uh, there was an election after that, and the Liberals, who were in charge of increasing it, uh, won. Then there was another election in 2013, and the Liberals were responsible for it, and they won. Uh, I ran on raising the carbon price to $50 a ton in 2017, and I was sworn in as Premier. Uh, I believe that deferring it this year was absolutely the right thing to do, and we'll see what uh, the circumstances are as we develop our budget uh, going into 2021, which is a, a damn sight farther, closer to people's attention than 2008. And we'll make a decision in the best interest of the greatest number of people. That's uh, what we've been trying to do since we were sworn in, and I'll keep doing that. Premier, I know you have a busy day today. I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. No worries, man. You take care. All right. Thank you. That is Premier John Horgan. I always appreciate his time on the show. Let's get some reaction from the opposition now. My guest is Peter Millibar, BC Liberal MLA for Kamloops North Thompson. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hi. Okay. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be on. Thank you for coming on. One of the things I talked to the Premier about just a few moments ago was the uh, the government's website here having some problems with this COVID relief benefit, uh, the website cra crashing for a lot of people. Some people are able to get through. I'm getting some notes here on Twitter saying some people were able to get through and sign up for the benefit, but a lot of people still getting a, a, a frozen website. Um, he said that uh, they thought they were ready. There were some problems. They're working on it. Your thoughts? Well, it, it's incredible to me. We went through this. Uh, I was the environment critic when uh, Minister Heyman had the camping website crash uh, yeah. incredibly badly. And, and to hear the Premier's responses is simply not good enough. Uh, to say he asked a question, essentially, of his minister, so did we. Uh, we had assurances. You would think this government would have learned from it. All sorts of various organizations and, and shopping and, and concert tickets, everything, have figured out how to handle capacity. Uh, hardly 3.7 million people are not all trying to sign on at the same time right now to get that benefit. So it's crashing with a, what would really be a low volume for a, a web-based uh, portal. 
um, and, and it's simply unacceptable. Yeah, let me play a clip here for you for what he had to say here to me just a few moments ago. I asked him about the crashing uh, website, and here's what the Premier told me. Yeah, they're working on it, uh, and it, that speaks to uh, the, the uptake on this program, and I'm excited about that, but uh, so many people uh, hit, hit send uh, that we've had uh, technical difficulties, but we've got a team working on it, and it'll be up and running soon, and if we continue to have difficulties, we'll just keep uh, trying through the weekend and into next week. It's not unlike, Mike, you remember when we got rid of the bots for people getting campsites and uh, the, camp, yeah. the, the, the site kept crashing because people wanted to find campsites. That's what we're seeing today. And I ask people to be patient, keep going back, keep refreshing, and hopefully we'll get uh, everybody through as quickly as possible. I don't, know, I don't know why they didn't do it by alphabetical order like the federal government did, it, did for the CERB. You know, I mean, when, when, they, yeah. when the feds brought the CERB out, they knew that there was going to be so much uptake on that program that it would, had the potential to overwhelm and crash their system. So they said, OK, we'll do it by alphabetical order. Well, you know, we, we, we rationally have thought this out. And I don't know why they didn't do something here. I mean, they must have known they were going to absolutely swamped. Well, absolutely. And, and we've seen that uh, across the board uh, uh, with COVID responses. Uh, the federal government keeps adapting things on the fly. Uh, if the grant program wasn't working, they adapted the the eligibility. The, the government here has has dug in their heels on cumbersome application processes for businesses. Uh, they have a website crash for camping uh, because of COVID uh, volume spiking. Uh, they didn't learn nothing from that when it comes to this. Here we are right before Christmas, but more importantly, right before month end, when a lot of people are probably hoping for this $1,000 or $500 to help them with their rent. And now they're probably yeah. unsure if it takes through the weekend to do this, if it's actually going to hit the bank account in time um, before their landlord's knocking on their door. It, it's a complete failure uh, that they were not better prepared uh, for this rollout. They picked the technology, they picked the, the rollout date, um, and they have failed. Okay, one of the things I feel sympathy for are disabled British Columbians who are trying to access these funds today because at the same time the government is uh, requiring people to go online and apply for this money they're clawing back a disability benefit that they gave to British a disabled British Columbians to help them through this pandemic it was $300 a month they cut it back to $150 a month completely blindsided disability groups in British Columbia zero consultation on this and the rationale for it was well we're giving you this other money we're giving you this recovery benefit and now you're asking disabled British Columbians to go on a crashing website to get their money while you're while you're clawing back their funds but your, your thoughts on that well, not only are they making them uh, reapply, uh, they you know they didn't have to apply for the three hundred dollars. That was automatic if you were getting those payments. So roll that in, roll those five hundred in if they're all going to qualify, anyways. Um, at the same time, if you receive any other COVID type benefit, you're not seeing a clawback because you're eligible to apply for the five hundred or the thousand dollars. Yet persons with disabilities uh, are getting clawed back because yeah. they now can apply for the same thing everyone else in British Columbia can apply for. It makes absolutely no sense. They tried doing it under the cover of this benefit. It was very cold-hearted, and it's amazing to me. You think of that NDP caucus. There's got to be, what, at least 55 of the 57 that would classify themselves as social justice uh, ad, uh, activists, and they've all sat on their hands and let this get ramrodded through. Nick Simons, as the minister, is actually presiding over a clawback of persons with disabilities. Are you kidding me? And the Premier's best response is, I'm but one voice in the cabinet table? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. 
Well, they should have learned their lesson when the previous Liberal government tried to take away disabled people's bus passes, and, and we saw the, the uproar over that, and the NDP was absolutely pitiless in going after you guys when you guys did that to disabled British Columbians. So I, I'm amazed they haven't learned their lesson on that. we just got 30 seconds left. Do you think that they should restore that full $300 benefit to disabled British Columbians here now? They absolutely should, and, and yeah. the Premier needs to stop hiding behind things. He makes it sound like we were not willing to debate uh, food delivery charge caps. We brought the legislation in. The only reason we only debated the one bill is they only brought one bill forward for debate. Um, they refused okay. to bring forward the cap. I mean, the Premier needs to start being honest with British Columbians and start taking some responsibility and accountability for his own actions of his government. Thank you for coming on this morning. Great. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks a lot. That is Peter Millobar. He's the BC Liberal MLA for Kamloops North Thompson. Let's talk about the Tom Cruise viral rant now. Tom Cruise, one of my favorite actors. I really enjoy the Mission Impossible movies and just about anything that he's in, but man, oh man, you do not want to be on this guy's bad side, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you're breaking the rules, he will rain down fire on you. The whole world has heard this viral audio tape obtained by the Sun newspaper out of the United Kingdom of Tom Cruise just losing it on the set of the latest Mission Impossible movie, which was filming in London. The actor, he's also the producer of the movie, can be used hurrying, uh, just dropping F-bombs all over the place toward the crew for not following COVID-19 safety protocols. Have a listen. You're back here in Hollywood making movies right now because of us. Because they believe in us and what we're doing. I'm on the phone with every studio at night. Insurance companies. Producers. And they're looking at us and using us to make their movies. We are creating thousands of jobs, you I don't ever want to see it again. Whoa, whoa, man, oh man. Tom Cruise is just hot. He was furious over this. Now, what was going on before that? Now, some of the reports that have come out from the set of this film is that he was angry seeing two crew members standing too close to each other at a computer, and that's really what, what triggered him here. Now, it's interesting, the reaction to this thing now, because a lot of people have heard this audio, and they say, you know what? Tom Cruise is right. He did the right thing. Maybe there should be more of this of people losing it over COVID-19 rule breakers. Did he do the right thing? Or... This is kind of like workplace bullying. Did he fly off the handle too much? Did he handle it improperly? Now, have a listen to this. This is his buddy, George Clooney, who's another A-lister. Tom Cruise's buddy. Kind of coming to the defense of Tom Cruise. This is George Clooney talking to Howard Stern. He didn't overreact because it is a problem. And, you know, I have yep. a friend who's an AD on another TV show who just had the almost exact same thing happen with not quite as... Uh, uh, as far out a response. Um, right. I think I, I wouldn't have done it that big. I wouldn't have, you know, pulled people out. You know, you're in a position of power and it's tricky, right? You, you it do is. have a responsibility for everybody else. And he's absolutely right about that. And, and, you know, it, if the production goes down, a lot of people lose their jobs and it's, you know, people have to understand that and they have to be responsible. 
Okay, as George Clooney there talking about his buddy Tom Cruise saying, well, maybe he wouldn't have done it exactly the way that Cruise did, but he thought that Cruise was pretty much right in doing what he did there and just bringing the hammer down on COVID-19 rule breakers on this movie set. Okay, let's talk about this now with my guest, Stephen Hammond. He is a workplace behavior expert. He's also a lawyer. Uh, his book is The New Norm. It's a manager's guide to improving workplace behavior and keeping out of legal hot water. StephenHammond.ca is his website. Stephen, it's nice to have you back on. Thanks, Mike. Good to be with you. Thanks a lot for coming on. You're an expert in kind of workplace harassment and bullying here. When you heard that uh, that audio of Tom Cruise, what went through your mind as kind of a workplace expert on this stuff? Do you think he did the right thing? Well, clearly it's not the right thing, but yeah. but people are allowed to be human beings, and and there's a lot at stake. I mean, knowing that I was coming on your program this morning, what do I see in the paper but uh, an article about Big White, and uh, they yes. fired a bunch of people because of um, breaking the COVID uh, rules and because they had a zero-tolerance uh, policy. They've now canceled all non-local bookings, which will have a huge economic impact, and so it's the kind of thing that we're not talking about in you know, normal times. This is something that is literally killing people and certainly incapacitating people. And it's having a huge impact on the economy. So the fact that, you know, someone that Tom Cruise did this, you'd like to think, okay, just, you know, just like George Clooney said, gee, I would have handled it better. If he did it on a regular basis all the time, that would be a different story. That would be a bit like Gian Gameshi. And as a matter of fact, I, I wrote about that in the book. You know, this guy was considered a star, untouchable, so he could get away with anything. And then, of course, it all blew up. It turns out, you know, it was going on forever. So people can be are allowed to be human. You know, you don't. we don't know what was established beforehand. Was it, like, really clear that there was zero tolerance policy? And also, when he was threatening people's jobs, well, most of these people, yeah. if not all of them, would be in the union. So, you know, it's easy to fly off the handle and say you're going to lose your job whether that would be the case or not you know we don't know all the circumstances okay let's listen to another clip here from this this viral rant here Stephen, and get your take now keep in mind that uh tom cruise is the producer on this on this movie so he's got a, a big stake in this mission impossible film and it's being allowed to be filmed in london under very strict covid protocols and i think like you know he's thinking bottom line here he does not want to see this movie get shut down and he's pointing out to the staff here, the crew on this movie, that, look, you know, there are people who have got their, their careers on the line if these movies get shut down. So let's have a little listen here to more of the, the Tom Cruise rant here. You can tell it to the people that are losing their homes because our industry is shut down. It's not going to put food on their table or pay for their college education. That's what I sleep with every night. In the future of the industry. Okay, yeah, so he's pointing out that, look, you know, if, if this movie gets shut down and maybe other movies get shut down, that's people out of work, right? So does that justify him kind of flying off the handle there a bit, Stephen? Well, you know, when Roseanne Barr um, made one stupid, ir irresponsible and racist tweet, um, the entire production company went down. And, um, you know, so there's lots of times where where a single incident, in that case, it was something racist. In this case, it's because of, of, of COVID protocols. 
that there's sometimes there's going to be huge consequences to a lot of people's jobs. Again, it doesn't excuse if you've got someone bullying on a regular basis. And, you know, you would think that a guy like me who, you know, writes books and, and, and gives a lot of um, speeches and presentations about bullying and inappropriate behavior, you think I'd be completely on side saying, oh, this is all wrong. Well, yeah, it's wrong, but you have to look at the circumstances. Again, if he just does this on a regular basis, then you got a problem. But you know, and, and it also could be that after the fact, you know, we don't know. Maybe he said, look, I'm really sorry. I, I went crazy there. Um, and and we're, allowed, we're allowed to be humans, but we just can't do it on a regular basis. Otherwise, that's truly bullying. All right. Speaking of Stephen Hammond, he's a workplace behavior expert. Uh, his book is The New Norm. Let me play another one here for you, Stephen. This is uh, Cruz. Now, I think this is kind of a, a crucial part of the, uh, the whole rant. And this is where if he sees people breaking the COVID rules again, you're going to be fired. So here he's threatening to fire people. Here's Cruz again. And if you don't do it, you're fired. And I see you do it again, you're gone. And anyone on this crew does it. That's it. And you too. And you too. And you. Don't you ever do it again. Okay, yeah, just really singling people out there in that audio, just threatening to fire people. I mean, Stephen, what do you think of that? I mean, is that the way for... A manager, and this guy's effectively a manager. He's the producer of the movie. Uh, you know, threatening to fire people for not for not following the rules. I mean, is is that something like what would what would you recommend to managers in a workplace in, in this COVID era? When, you know, to try and get people to follow oh. the rules, like play tough like that, threatening to fire them, or is there a better way to get people to to go along with the rules? Mike, clearly, there's a better way. Um, and, and the thing is, if you're, if you're asking about what I do, I'd be saying, look, the protocols are really clear. Uh, as a matter of fact, if it's like Big White, for example, you know, in yeah. which they said they have zero tolerance about this. If, if you're going, you know, if you're going against the protocols so that it can danger other people's lives as well as, you know, the business and everything else, then you take the person aside and say, sorry, look, you were, it was very clear, but I'm afraid you're, you're, you're gone here. Um, you know, if that is what you want to do. And, and also remember, it's very easy to say someone's fired. One of the things I also wrote about was about Sean Simos. He was a fellow who worked, who works for, I assume, um, uh, Hydro One in Ontario. And in a 2015 um, on live uh, or, or live um, thing at a, at a sporting event, he, his friend said something vulgar, and then he was there. He was there being stupid in front of the camera. There was live, and the chairman of Hydro One comes on and says, "Well, we don't want this guy working here." Well, we find out about six months later that in fact he was working. Um, we don't know the protocols. He had a union. Maybe he was suspended for three months or six months. Maybe he, you know, got some penalty of some kind. We don't know all the details. But it's easy for someone just to, in the heat of the moment say right. someone is gone that doesn't automatically mean that they lose their rights um but yeah. the better way of doing it is just i mean if you get you need to give someone a warning you give them a warning better to do it in private but you also want to make sure everyone else understands it and then of course if you're if, if you have the right to fire someone then you take them aside and say i'm sorry we just can't have you risking uh, you know other people's safety and lives my guest is Stephen Hammond. He's a trainer on workplace harassment. He's an expert on workplace behavior. All right, let's talk about the Massey Tunnel now, chronically clogged Massey Tunnel. I really feel for the people who get stuck in that bottleneck of traffic. When will it be replaced? Will it be replaced by a new tunnel? What about a, a, new, a new bridge? Let's check in now with the Cabinet Minister responsible, Rob Fleming. He's BC's Minister of Transportation. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. I, pre I appreciate it a lot. What is happening with the Massey Tunnel right now? Can you give me a, a status update on this project? 
Yeah, um, no, it's a good time we're talking because uh, just yesterday, uh, government received a uh, business case on uh, how to proceed. This was, of course, the product of working with Metro Vancouver mayors, Indigenous governments, to get the right project uh, for Massey Crossing. You know, this is obviously needed replacement. It's uh, it was uh, opened in 1959, and uh, it's a significant congestion pinch point for tens of thousands of commuters as as you rightly rightly said uh yeah. very frustrating it we always wanted to get the the right project though and uh, and that's what's been going on we established a task force through those discussions there were a number of unanswered questions and we wanted government to be able to consider two options as you pointed out a replacement uh, either a bridge or a replacement for the immersed uh, tube tunnel and um those technical answers, both on the environmental side, how to manage a project of this scope, uh, given that it is in the Fraser River, significant uh, salmon migratory route, uh, as well as the uh, technical details around immersed tube technology, not, not a technology we use very much in British Columbia. In fact, this is the only one we have, but utilized uh, in transportation networks uh, in other parts of the world. So that's what the report contains, is, is things around timeline cost, uh, and uh, scope of the project, and also uh, working with uh, federal legislation on the uh, technical aspects of what an environmental review would look like. So oh, we okay. have that now, and yeah. we will be considering it as government uh, very early in the new year. Okay, so just so I'm clear on this, so the business case does it recommend the tunnel, or does it, or does it still leave the option open for a new a new bridge? Well, it evaluates both and and looks at the pros and cons of each. And, uh, you know, no one project is perfect over the other. Each has some merits, uh, but government's going to have to weigh a, a number of considerations around that to, to come to a preferred option. We know what some of our partners, and we call them partners because we've wanted to work with as opposed to against Metro Vancouver mayors on this. Uh, we know what they prefer, and we've consulted uh, key economic stakeholders uh, like Port Metro Vancouver, obviously has an interest in marine vessel traffic here and First Nations rights holders who have fishery rights uh, on the Fraser. And, uh, you know, when you look at the Sawasan Nation, too, is, is critically reliant on, uh, uh, on this uh, corridor. Okay. Let me play this clip for you, Minister. This is, um, you've been under a lot of pressure on this project, especially from a guy named uh, Ian Payton, who's a BC Liberal MLA, whom I know you know well. And he was on the show earlier this week and kind of calling you out, and here's what he said. Uh, Rob Fleming is the new uh, transportation minister. He was actually asked the other day by another media source uh, saying, do you think this thing could actually be completed by the year 2035, which is 15 years from now? And it was radio silence. He says, well, I can't really make a comment on that. Okay, as Ian Payton, the Liberal MLA, they're talking about the the clogged, the chronically clogged Massey Tunnel and when are commuters going to get some relief. All right, my guest is uh, Transportation Minister Rob Fleming. Okay, don't give me any radio silence here now. So uh, (laughs) when is this thing going to get built? Hey, look, Ian, good guy, standing up for his constituents. I get it. The congestion is frustrating and he's representing them. Uh, and, and he made that comment before I had the benefit of having a business case. I've had it for 24 hours. Right. Timeline is a key aspect to that. I'm sorry I can't add any more breaking news to your program on that, but uh, <laughs> let me just say we can, we can beat that by a heck of a lot. And um, the whole of government approach right now, of course, with pandemic recovery, is to try and accelerate key pieces of infrastructure, transportation infrastructure included. Uh, We know the federal government shares the same economic goals as us, which is to restore employment, activate local supply chains, 
and get projects uh, moving as quickly as we can. That's how you rebound uh, the economy to to where it was pre-pandemic. We had the fastest growing economy in the country, the best employment numbers. We've done better than most uh, during the pandemic. You've seen that, the best of the four major provinces in the country. But we also have a window ahead of us in Budget 2021. We'll put a highlight on that. Where can we get uh, employment going? What regional projects uh, can we accelerate? Uh, Surrey Langley Skytrain Extension is one. We've already... We already begun on the Patella Bridge replacement, and the, the Massey Crossing was was uh, was needing uh, some of the major questions answered, right. which the business case has given us. Okay, the the people who use that tunnel have been I don't know how many years of their lives have been wasted sitting in traffic jams at at, at this notorious bottleneck known as the Massey Tunnel, and they've been looking for some relief and some hope. And under the previous Liberal government, they at one point decided they would build a ten lane bridge to replace the clogged tunnel and it actually started some construction work there and i thought it was giving some hope to commuters when they saw some of the construction activity going on here just thinking like okay finally there'd be some relief on the way this has now been kind of put on hold as you guys study study the project again will you you just mentioned that you've received now in the last 24 hours a business case for replacement of the massey tunnel that looks at two options a new tunnel or, or a bridge Will you publicly release this this business case study now? Uh, well, it, we need to consider it as a government, and we also need to work respectfully on a government-to-government basis with both the feds and uh, and indigenous governments and Metro Vancouver mayors. So we need we need a little bit of time to consume this. It's I can tell you, it's going to uh, get cabinet direction and feedback early in the new year. Uh, we've already uh, booked some engagements with. Uh, mayors and the Swasson First Nation and others uh, early in the new year as well. So we, we, we've got the report, we're, we're uh, working through it, and we're going to continue the commitment we made. I, one thing I would note, though, and, and Ian yeah. Payton never talks about this, what the public told us very, very clearly, going all the way back to 2017, they told his government, the former government, we don't want to be gouged and ripped off thousands of dollars a year in our income. It's hard enough to afford housing in Metro Vancouver, it's even worse if you're paying, as people with the Portman and Golden Ears were, significant tolls each and every day. You're getting yeah. punished because you want to afford a house, but you work somewhere else. And it's really, it was really a tax on people south of the Fraser. It was totally unfair. So we rejected that public policy. Yeah, because uh, it was law. going to be a toll bridge. They were planning to build, build a toll bridge. It was going to be a toll bridge. It might have right. even been owned by a foreign consortium. So we would have lost control of a key uh, piece of infrastructure, uh, a key asset of, of our infrastructure network. So, no, we rejected that. That was a clear part of the business case. Give us two options, cost them, give us a timeline, but no tolls under any circumstances. Okay, so the business case not being released, or will you release it publicly at some point here soon? I think we'll, I mean, we're going we're gonna, to uh, work with it with our partners and, and release the key details. And uh, at, at some point uh, when the time is right, we'll, that business case will be uh, significantly available to, to people to look okay. at. It is a thorough report. It answers all the key questions. Uh, and it's exactly what uh, our government is needed to. Well, why, uh, not to rele- why, not re- why not release it right now? Well, I think we, we need to consider it. There's costing details in there. There's confidential information that, that, that government... Uh, uh, needs to consider, and okay. uh, and that's the process. Minister, thank you for coming on today. 
Thanks very much for having me, Mike. You bet. I appreciate it. That is BC Transportation Minister Rob Fleming talking about the clogged Massey Tunnel and the plan to replace it. As you heard him say there in the last 24 hours, he has received a detailed business plan for the project to replace the Massey Tunnel. It outlines two options, a bridge over the Fraser River to replace the tunnel or a new wider tunnel uh, underneath the river. All right, we've followed this story very closely on the Massey Tunnel. For people who use that commuter route, one of the most congested in the Lower Mainland, I feel for people who have seen their lives just dwindling away as they wait in traffic jams around the chronically congested Massey Tunnel. And there's been long promises here to replace it. What is the answer to this challenge? Do you build a bridge? Do you build a wider tunnel? You heard my conversation there with Transportation Minister Rob Fleming. He confirms that in the last 24 hours, he's received a detailed business case for both options, a, a new bridge or a new tunnel, uh, saying that it no, won't be released uh, yet, but he says government studying it. Let's check in with the opposition now. Ian Payton, he's the B.C. Liberal MLA for Delta South, and he's been on this issue from the very start. Welcome back. Hi. Hey, good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. So the government has this business case. Uh, Fleming just told me that they're studying it. They expect to release details of it soon. Your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are with everything so far with this uh, George Massey Tunnel replacement with the NDP government is, yeah, we're going to come up with something fairly soon for you. Well, we've heard that. It's almost comical for three and a half years. Uh, the way they've kicked around more and more studies and consultation, which we did way back in 2014, 2015, 2016 to get the bridge built. So um, I'm not going to hold my breath waiting for this business plan to get uh, publicly uh, vetted uh, anytime soon. Okay, what do you think should be done? Should they build? You guys wanted to build the bridge. He says they're taking a look at that and also a wider tunnel under the river. Which do you think would be a better option? Well, of course, you know, the bridge is certainly the better option. I mean, Mike, if we go back to the 600,000 tons of sand sitting on the side of Highway 99 was part of the bridge uh, project to be built. There was companies such as Hall Contracting, Jacobs Brothers, Henry Drilling. They all had employees working to build the new bridge. It was already started. We had spent $100 million moving the project forward. All the test piles had been driven into the ground to test the weight, the load-bearing of the new bridge. Uh, the hydro towers were being moved to put the hydro lines across the river, which now go through the actual tunnel. So, I mean, you know, like I've said before, uh, you know, as a farmer, we're pretty frugal, and it just drives me nuts when I see $100 million of taxpayers' money down the drain on a project that would be ready to go uh, probably a year and a half from now. Okay, when I was speaking to Rob Fleming, the transportation minister, a moment ago, uh, your name did come up. I don't know if your ears were burning, but he uh, took a little crack at you. One of the things he said was when you guys were building that bridge, it was going to be a, a, a for, potentially a foreign-owned toll bridge, and that's one of the reasons why they were opposed to it. Your response? Well, in this latest uh, snap election that they called in the middle of a pandemic, which still I still can't believe happened, but anyways... Uh, we put in our platform that is not going to be a toll bridge. But even if it was a toll bridge, I've always been one to say, and it's not going to be, so let's be clear about that. But I always thought, why should people in Fort St. James and Creston, people that will never use a bridge or a tunnel in their lifetime, be helping to pay for it as taxpayers in this province? So I always thought, you know, a small token toll for the people that use it every day wouldn't be such a bad thing. Okay, where do we go from here now? We just got a minute left. What do you want to see happen next? 
Well, what I want to see happen next is I'd like to see this thing go back to the work that's already been done. I mean, there's a lot of work that's been done. The, the, the pile, these massive steel pilings are still laying on the side of the road there. The, the yeah. preload's been done for widening, widening Highway 99. Um, you know, they're, they're in a real pickle right now because Tawasin First Nations and Musqueam have told me, I just had a meeting the other day with Ken Baird, the chief of Tawasin First Nations. They absolutely do not want to see a massive concrete tube sunk into the bottom of the Fraser River for obvious environmental reasons. So I can yeah. see that's never going to fly with an environmental review. So then they might have to go back to saying, well, let's go ahead with a bridge, and then they're going to have egg on their face because that was our plan right from the get-go. Okay. Yeah. We've, we're following it very closely. Thank you for coming on. Okay, Mike, anytime. Thanks, All right. That, that's Bye-bye. Liberal MLA Ian Payton. He's the uh, Liberal MLA for Delta South. We continue to follow that saga of the Massey Tunnel very closely for you. There's a lot of expectation in Washington, D.C. that U.S. President Donald Trump will soon issue a flurry of pardons in the final days in office. And there's speculation that some of these pardons could even come as early as today. It has sparked a very contentious discussion, especially among congressional Republicans, over whether former National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden should be pardoned. Snowden has been living in exile in Russia for many years. He's accused of espionage and theft of government property in the United States after he leaked U.S. intelligence secrets back in 2013. If he was to come home without a pardon, he could face decades in prison. Trump under pressure here to give Snowden a pardon, and there's some split opinion on whether he should. Now, have a listen to this here now. Now, this is Snowden, uh, who has been advocating for a pardon. He wants to return to the United States. And uh, here is Snowden. The question of whether I, as a whistleblower, uh, should be pardoned is not for me to answer. But I will say this. I love my country. I love my family. And I have dedicated my life to both of them. These risks, these burdens that I took on, I knew were coming. And no one should be in a position to make these kind of decisions. That's not the kind of place that we're supposed to be. It's Edward Snowden. Uh, he wants to return to the United States looking for that pardon from Donald Trump. Now, Trump has been asked many times whether he would consider pardoning Edward Snowden. And he said he's thinking about it. Here's Trump. Well, I'm going to look at it. I mean, I'm not that aware of the Snowden situation, but I'm going to start looking at it. There are many, many people. It seems to be a split decision. There are many people think that... Uh, he should be somehow treated differently, and other people think he did very bad things. And I'm going to take a very good look at it. Okay, is Edward Snowden a traitor who should spend the rest of his life in jail, or is he a brave whistleblower, a hero, who should receive a pardon from Donald Trump? Let's talk about this now with my guest, Christopher Parsons. He's a senior research associate with the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. Can you remind the listeners just uh, in brief terms, like who Edward Snowden is and, and, and what he did? Yeah, Edward Snowden was a defense contractor who had previously worked within uh, American intelligence agencies and then subsequently had a series of postings as a private contractor. Uh, in the course of that, he became deeply concerned about some of the activities that had been undertaken by the U.S. government, including bulk surveillance of huge swaths of the population, and subsequently removed a large volume of that data, uh, fled to Hong Kong, um, and then worked with journalists to very carefully uh, disseminate information 
Uh, he then, uh, as part of an effort to flee to South uh, America, uh, had his passport revoked by the U.S. government knowingly um, during transit, leaving him stranded in Russia, uh, which is where he has been ever since. Yeah, what an amazing saga. What, what do you think of him? What's your opinion? Is he, is he a traitor or, or is he a hero? Is he like a whistleblower? I think he's definitely uh, a whistleblower. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the degree to, to which people think he's a hero or a traitor, I think often depends on uh, how close they are to the material that he released. I would say that uh, obviously the information that was provided to journalists, so he didn't just dump this on the internet, it was provided to journalists, it was carefully vetted, not just by journalists, but also by security experts to assess whether or not the information that could be disclosed was in the public interest. And I can authoritatively state there are a large number of items that um, were collected by uh, Ed that never once and never will see light of day. Okay, when you take a look at the sort of the histories of, of whistleblowers in the United States, I mean, it's just such a, a long, distinguished list of people who just loom large and in American history, like, you know, I think of Daniel Ellsberg, who released the Pentagon Papers during the, the Vietnam War, or, or Mark Felt, who was the former associate director of the FBI, who was a source for Woodward and Bernstein and Watergate, the famous Deep Throat source, you know, in, in the big tobacco industry, and Jeffrey Wiegand, who blew the whistle on, on big tobacco and, and, and the cause of cancer from tobacco smoking. You know, these are these are people who are, I guess, regarded in many ways as as heroes by a lot of people. Do you think Edward Snowden belongs in that list? Um, I personally do, but I also know there are still people in the American uh, intelligence and defense industry that would put many of those people on traitor lists to this yeah, day. Right. So I I think one of the things that's noteworthy about contemporary whistleblowing, um, such as through uh, Edward Snowden as well as others is it has changed in the quantity of information that is being disclosed quite often. And that's both because it's easier to collect and disclose information. So, you know, when you had to go and photocopy pages, it's a little bit harder. Um, and it's also the result of the kind of surveillance that is often undertaken by, by governments. Um, so we are seeing, you know, massive data centers, the likes of which we've never seen before, being built solely for the purpose of archiving massive volumes of communications in ways that, you know, even 20, 30 years ago was was you know, bad, dystopic sci-fi, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, this is a fascinating situation for sure. My guest is Christopher Parsons with the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto, and we're talking about Edward Snowden. Should he be pardoned by Donald Trump? I mean, this is such a fascinating decision point here for Trump, if he pardons this guy or not. There's like split split opinion among among Republicans. Some Republicans saying, yeah, they should pardon him, and others saying, hell no, the guy's a traitor and he, he should rot in jail. Um is how tough? Like, how do you uh, an analyze this decision by Trump? I mean, is, does he listen to other Republicans as he decides this, or is this this comes down to like a, a, it's a gut personal decision by the president? <laughs> if, you know? if any of us could accurately predict how Donald Trump would think, yeah. I suspect the candidate would be in a better geopolitical, uh, geostrategic position right now. I think really what this demonstrates is. You know, is this a question of the pardon? Should the pardon be the, the avenue through which this should be addressed? Or, you know, Ed's larger concerns and complaints is that he is willing to return to the United States tomorrow to stand trial if he is able to make a full-throated defense. And under the existing American laws that he's charged under, he cannot make a public interest defense. And that means that all of the uh, evidence that could be marshaled by his legal team showcasing that what he did was, in fact, in the public good, and that public good outweighs uh, the, the activities of disclosing information, he cannot present that as part of his defense. 
And so the fact that we're talking about a pardon is really the fact that we're talking about a broken American legal system that has deliberately chosen not to reform itself. Right. Do you think this, for Edward Snowden, that this is the last best hope here for a pardon under Trump? Like once, once Joe Biden is the president of the United States, I believe Biden is on the record as saying, I think that he has said that Snowden should not be pardoned. I mean, it just seems less likely that a pardon could come from a Biden administration. I think that's probably a correct assessment. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly the Obama administration was uh, displeased, to put it very gently, uh, about the actions of uh, Mr. Snowden. But what I would hope is that uh, as more and more whistleblowers have come forward throughout the Trump administration and has suffered severe recriminations, I would hope that the Democrats and Joe Biden's administration looks at that as a reason to reform whistleblowing laws, to protect whistleblowers, to give them public interest defenses, so that we can avoid sending people to prison, um, potentially, for when they're acting in good conscience and they can demonstrate that what they did in a court of law is in the public interest. Okay, Christopher, we just got one minute left here. What's your sort of gut feeling on this or your prediction here? I know, I know you said it's, it's almost impossible to get into the mind of Trump, which I can understand. But do you think Trump will pardon him? Or, or what's, what's your read of the tea leaves here? I mean, currently there are uh, a number of veteran White House reporters that are saying that Trump has a large number of pardons, that he has sort of yeah. you know, sitting literally on his desk, figuratively on his desk. So I, I have suspect that we will find out the day that he, is, uh, he leaves or is removed from office um, whether or not he has issued these pardons or not. So frankly, your guess is as good as mine, but I suspect yeah. he's going to focus a lot more on his children before he focuses on Edward Snowden. Yes, okay. We're watching it very closely. Thanks for your analysis today. Thanks for your time. You bet. Appreciate it. That's Christopher Parsons. He's a senior research associate with the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto, keeping a close eye here on U.S. President Donald Trump. Lots of speculation about a flurry of pardons coming from Trump here in his final days in office. Could he pardon Edward Snowden? We shall see.